He says, freedom that we have, we have liberty. You have the right to eat whatever you want. Praise God. You can eat a Chick-fil-A if you want. You can eat it out in and out. You can be a vegan if you're going that direction. You can eat whatever you want. You can not eat whatever you want. Praise God. But guess what? If my food and my choices will affect your walk with Jesus, then I will forego every right that I have in order that you would see Christ. Welcome to Refuge Podcast a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. First Corinthians chapter nine. Well, chapter nine begins uh, with these words. Let's read it together. It says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? And if I am not an apostle, to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this, do we have no right to eat and drink? This chapter, Paul's dealing with financial support here. He's going to talk about, we're not taking like a second tithe, or I don't even think we took a first tithe. But, but and the, the point of this is not just tithing, it's not just giving, it's not just supporting the church or, or anything like that. Paul's working towards a different theme, and he, he's going to take a few, few minutes to get there. We're going to take a few minutes to get there and kind of discuss where that's heading. But um, he's been dealing with certain issues within the church in Corinth. Remember, we come to this division in chapter 6 where it becomes now from corrective to answering their own questions. So chapter 7 begins with, or uh, yeah, chapter 7 begins saying, now concerning the things which you wrote to me. So he's answering these questions. We spent a few weeks on uh, Paul's instructions for being single, God's design in the time frame in which you're being, sing- er, being single and what we're supposed to be doing that during that time. We looked at God's guidelines as well on how to date properly and as a Christian, how to, how to do that the right way. There is the right way to date and Tinder's not that way. And so we kind of went through a lot of those things. Not that I can't use it, but let's let him use some other things, you know, first. And um, so we kind of went through all of that. And if you want to go back and listen to those, you can. They're on our podcast and, and hopefully you're blessed. If not, you know, don't say anything nasty. Just don't tell anyone about it. So um, we went through those topics because Paul talks about this in chapter seven. Last week we talked about um, Paul's instructions for things can, uh, that are being offered to idols. So meat that was being offered to idols, instructions on how to deal with that. And, and what's happening here, obviously we don't struggle with that today. We're not going through Chick-fil-A and like, was this sacrificed to Dagon? Because, you know, that's not really our concern. And if you're eating at Chick-fil-A, your main, I don't think health is necessarily your main concern, right? It's not mine anyway. Um, not that it's bad or evil or working there is a bad thing. God bless all employees that work there. And uh, I ate there today. And so enjoy. Um, you know, may God richly bless you and have favor upon your soul. But <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. Got off on a weird tangent. But Paul's going to make the point here tonight that he has rights. He has rights. I don't know if you've noticed, but lately that's been coming up a lot. It's a buzzword, if you will. Rights. Human rights. Women's rights. Transgender rights. This rights. That rights. That or whatever. I have rights. All these things. Okay. Paul's going to talk about his rights as, as an apostle. It's, an import, it's, it's important as we interpret the text to always keep the cultural context in view. 
Now, the Greeks, for the most part, looked down on manual labor, and that's important for where we're headed tonight, but that's why they had slaves. And when they had slaves, they were uh, to do all the manual labor of their day in order that the Greeks would enjoy sports, philosophy, and leisure, or otherwise known as the good life, as we would call it. However, the Jews magnified honest work. Rabbis even learned and practiced a trade. They thought their people, uh, or they actually taught their people, he who doesn't teach his son to work teaches him to be a thief. So because Paul and some of, of those he traveled with worked with leather and made tents to support themselves, the church in Corinth called into question whether or not Paul was really an apostle. Not only that, but the way that Paul came into Corinth and spoke to the people there when he first started ministering and planting that church there. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, he says, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I wouldn't forget, uh, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid, and trembling and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I did this so you would trust, not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. And so in the way that Paul even came into that place, and the way that he preached, he didn't use the wisdom and philosophizing of the times to kind of prove his point, but he simply preached the gospel. And what he's detailing to us is the power that's in the gospel. The Bible likens the gospel and God's word to seed. As small and as tiny and as uh, useless as they may seem, within every seed contains the power to create life. And so too with the word of God. It has the power to bring forth that which is dead back to life, meaning our soul. The Bible says that we're dead in sins and trespasses, and God brings us back to life, regenerated. It's called being saved or coming to life from death to life, having our soul regenerated. Now, they compared him to one of their all-time faves, Peter. Peter was this robust, hairy gentleman, probably wore flannel if it existed at the time. <laughs> But he was loud, he was obnoxious uh, uh, from what we read in the Gospels. And, and he was very powerful in the way that he presented the Gospel, in the way that he preached. And they're like, well, Paul's all weak over here with like his quivery little weird eyes. And he's bald and kind of ugly and, and all this. And Peter comes in, barrel-chested, smelling like fish, like he's coming out of Dana Wharf and just like, repent! And everyone's like, now that's a preacher right there. That's, that's an apostle. Yeah, this guy over here, now this guy, wow, wielding an axe, no doubt, or some other kind of fishing tool. How many of you fish with an axe? Yeah, <laughs> me too, yeah. Anyway, when I was 12, I'm just going to, quick story, side shoot. My grandfather bought my cousin and I knives, uh, and we went camping up in the Sierras, and we weren't catching any fish, so we kind of got bored and what we decided to do was to jump into the river with knives drawn and just start stabbing. Just see what we could catch. So we're running down the banks of this river, leaping into the water and just like stabbing stuff. And no joke, my cousin stabbed me right in the thigh. Like stabbed me hard, going for a trout. And he like pulls up my leg and I'm like, oh my gosh. We were okay. Side note. 
My cousin also hooked me with a fish hook right in the ear, casting. And I don't, we don't get along or talk much <laughs> nowadays. But, so Paul is going to say in verse 3, look what he says in verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. Now, examine means searching scrutiny. It's the same word used that of Pilate, Pontius Pilate, when he examines the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That he examined him with scrutiny. He questioned him. And this is what we can all expect to face in our life. We can all expect to, to face examination and scrutiny in our life. And our lives will be examined by people who do not accept the reality of our gospel. The world that we live in, but that we are set apart from, will judge Christianity by those who represent it. Okay, so what they know of God, they get from you. What, what you portray Jesus in your life as, now you're like, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. And maybe you agree with Tupac that only God can judge me. But listen, it doesn't matter because the world will make its judgment Look it up. God, the Lord has placed us in this world to be a light of the gospel, to be an examination for the world, that they would see Christ through us. Now, that may, you may think, man, that's a lot of pressure and that's, that's not fair. Obviously, it's not us doing this. It's the Holy Spirit working in us. It's the Holy Spirit coming from our life. It's the, as we abide in Christ, we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming from us. But the world will judge Christianity based upon those who call themselves Christians. And the truth is, the world around us examines our lives for authenticity. And I think the world is tired of religion that is a sham. They want to see hearts and lives of those who profess Christ to bear the characteristics of the one they follow. They want genuineness. And so Paul says to them, those who examine me, hopefully this is what they find. A genuine heart for the Lord. Jesus said also of this, this examination and judgment that will come uh, from the world. He said that you are a city set on a hill. Meaning that Christ purposefully has placed his power and his spirit within you. And then placed you up on a hill so that people would see the light of the gospel coming. And they would know which way to go for safety. They would find direction in their bearings based upon the lights coming from that city. Um, Jesus also said one of the distinguishing characteristics of a true follower of Jesus is that, that his disciples would what? Love, yeah, love one another. Jesus said they will know, you, people will know that you're my disciple by the way that you love each other. So it's, it's built into the system. That in your Christianity, God has placed his spirit in you so that people would see Christ in you. It's part of it. And so what Paul is saying is, to those who examine me, hopefully this is what they find. But first he says, I'm an apostle. Am I not an apostle? He asks like a thousand rhetorical questions. We, you're going to read them and you're like, all of them are yeses. Like all, all the answers to these questions are yes. And these are very, this is a very Jewish way of talking. Right? They talk in question form. When we were in Israel, you'd be like, hey, tour guide, let me ask you a question. Is that where Jesus did this? And he's like, let answer with a question. Do you think that's where Jesus did? And you're like, no. And he's like, well, is it not? And they would answer. Everything was in a question. And we went to this Abraham's tent thing where it's like, 
it's like you're a guest at Abraham's house and he's like, come, come, come into my tent. And we had the most amazing Turkish coffee and bread like baked from a rock. And you're like, yes, this is what Abraham did. And as you're there, he just kept at talking in question form. Is this not the best bread that I never had? Is it not? And he kept saying, is it not? And all of us were like, do we answer? Because the answer is yes for all of these questions. And it's getting kind of annoying to say, yes, you're, yes, the whole time. And he's like, is it not? Is it, it, it was an actor guy, but he's like, is it not? Is it, and you're like, ah, Turkish coffee. So <laughs> Paul asks all these rhetorical questions. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? What is an apostle? Now, there, if you run into someone today who's like, I'm an, a living Apostle. There are some different views on this whole thing. One of the requirements for being an apostle are listed in our text, but apostle means simply one sent forth under commission. And therefore, as an apostle, Paul had been given certain rights, and one of which was to receive support from those who he ministered to. He had the right to be married, but he was single to uh, devote himself to the word of God. So in our text this evening, he's going to give five arguments to support his rights. And you're like, man, I'm so glad I came to church and I was hoping that I could go through this. An apostle. The requirements of apostleship were, number one, they had to see the risen Lord. And Paul even says, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And the answer is, yes. Yes, yes you have. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus appeared to him there on the road to Damascus and punched him in the face with light. And he was blinded by the glory of God. Right? It was Jesus there who met him, and he saw him, and he was blinded because of it. Not only are they those that had to be seen or seen the risen Lord for apostleship, they had to be given, or they were given the ability to, to give special signs and wonders to attest to the message that they preached. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, he says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. He says, you, you guys saw the things that happened and took place. I mean, the miracles that were taking place because of, of the Apostle Paul's ministry. I mean, he's shooting sweatbands out and people are getting healed based upon his sweatbands. And all these different things were going on uh, as a result of the power of God upon Paul's life. You can read it in the book of Acts. But he says to them in, in the end of verse 1, he says, Are you not my work in the Lord? Now, other versions say, you are a seal of my apostleship. Are you not a seal of my apostleship? He, he says the mark of authenticity or the mark of something being a genuine calling from the Lord is you. For me, he says, for my life as an apostle, the, the evidence of it is you. You are a seal of it. You are the genuine mark of it. Why? Because of how he toiled and worked in that city and in a difficult place that was so crazy. Corinth was known as, as one of the most debased places on earth. That if you had some money and you were ready to get wild, Corinth is where you went. You're like, I'm ready to blow it all. Woo, yay, woo. <laughs> Corinth was your place. And that's where Paul decides, like, I'm going to, I think this is where God's calling me to plant a church. And so he just faithfully one soul after another, preaching the gospel faithfully. The church is born out of it. And so he says, if there's anything of a genuine like mark of how I know that I'm an apostle, and you should know that I'm an apostle, 
is like the fact that there's a church in your city. Because that's not a work of man. That's a work of God. That's God's work. That's God's hand. That's God's spirit working through us. And it was a difficult place to establish a church uh, in that particular city. But by the empowering of God's spirit and the power of the word of God, it was established. Skip down, if you will. or Let's read it together. He says, um, if I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Oh, that's where it is. My bad. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat or drink? And the answer is? Yes, you have the right. Good job, front row. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do others and other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Yes. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have the right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, whoever plants a vineyard and does not eat of, the, of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? Okay, so again, like I was saying, there's a lot of rhetorical questions in there. And he just begins to say, like, hey, do I not have rights unto myself? One of them was, do I not have the right to get married? And we would all say with one big giant hallelujah, yes. Is it wrong to get married? No. Is it more holy to stay single? No. Is it more holy to get married? No. Neither is like more is better than the other in the sense that it gets you closer to God or, or it causes you to be more favorable before the Lord. You're not going to get to heaven because you're like, yeah, I stayed single. And God's like, you get, you get in first. Come on up here. <laughs> All you other married suckers, you know what I mean? <laughs> in the back. That's not what's happening. But he talks about the human experience here. In the world we live in, people get paid for working a job, Right? And I, you're like, yes, I get paid. It's not much. Who's FICA? Why are they taking all my money? But we all get paid for a job that we do. We're blessed. Paul uses three different examples. He says a soldier. A soldier is paid by the government. He's taken care of. His needs are, are met. I mean, he's, he has uh, food. He has a place to sleep in order that he would do his job. He would fight or he would protect he says, a man who plants a vineyard, he eats of that fruit because it's his vineyard. He's worked hard in that vineyard. Or a shepherd or a herdsman, he has the right to use the milk of his herd or, and to partake of that. But interesting that in the other places in scripture, these three images are used to teach us of our relationship to God. Soldier, a vineyard or a vine, and a shepherd or a herdsman. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, says, Paul says to Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as what? A good soldier of Jesus Christ. He, he talks about a vineyard in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. He says that you are God's field, that he is, he is tilling the soil of your heart, that God is, is working in your life. You are God's field. But also in John chapter 15, where the Bible says that we are the branches, that he is the vine. And as we abide in him, meaning that we're connected to Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, the life of Jesus Christ will come forth from our life. But it, it, you have to stay connected to the vine. Otherwise, a branch, when it breaks off, it dies. It's good for nothing. It cannot produce life in and of itself. It has to stay connected to the vine. But also in, in John's gospel, in the 10th chapter, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. Perhaps Paul is using these images on purpose. Could it be? And he's painting this picture that if the secular world pays its employees for a job, then the principle translates to the laborer of the gospel. 
Now, verses 8 through 12, he's going to use the example that are found in the Old Testament. Look what he says in verse 8. Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. It is ox, is it oxen? I can't even read. Okay. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things to you, it is a great thing if we reap your material things. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, that talks about oxen. Now, God, in his law, laid out many instructions for the nation of Israel. If you ever have some extra time and you're just, you know, Super into Deuteronomy. It just simply means, Deuteronomy means second law. So you can go through the law in Exodus and then you can, uh, in Leviticus, and then you can hear it again. You know, it's like God's greatest hits. Like, here's the law one more time. And, and what you find is that God is really serious about the way things were to be done. Like how his law was supposed to be kept. And one of those verses is that you will not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, is this, Paul says, is this written for the ox's sake? Like, is, is the oxen going to find a scroll of Deuteronomy and be like, hey, I've been being mistreated all these years. I knew it. No, because the oxen can't read, obviously. Was it written just for the farmer so he knew how to treat his ox? After all, it was the ox that worked so hard to till the field and to help harvest the grain. Paul sees and applies the principle to the servant of the Lord. He says, no, I think God had placed this, right? He's reading the Old Testament because this was their Bible. They didn't have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And we're studying and we're like, oh, it makes sense. They weren't reading like all these epistles. They weren't reading necessarily the book of Romans because it didn't exist. Or maybe it did. I don't know where exactly it lands in all of that. But it wasn't part of the, the Bible in which we, we learn from or which we read today. They're reading from the Old Testament. They're reading the Torah, they're reading the prophets, they're reading the Psalms, they're reading the Proverbs, and here they are, they have this, this book, this is their Bible, and Paul's saying, this is what God is talking about. He's interpreting God's law in order that we would apply the principle to our life. And he says, if, if it's working for oxen, if this is the teaching of the Bible, the Old Testament, it's not just for the oxen's sake, it's gotta be for a greater purpose, isn't it? And so Paul is taking scripture and applying it to his life. And that's what we still do today. We take scripture and we apply it to our life. Lately, I've been in the Old Testament reading, like reading, I've been listening to it, I'm going to be honest to you, with you, because it's really hard. Obviously, as you're learning tonight, it's hard for me to read. I didn't go to college. So <laughs> I'm not the smartest. So having it on, what I'm learning through all of this is that God is very detailed in the way that he desires to be worshipped. God is very detailed in, in the law. God is, is very detailed in the way that he wanted things to be done. It was not just for like giggles, like, hey, whatever. It was so that we would find principles within it and apply it to our life. That you can find the thread of the gospel anywhere you are, but you can also find principles that God has laid out that are truths that still apply to us Today, verses 13 and 14, as we skip over verse 12, because we're going to come back to that. Look what it says 
Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve as the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Paul uses, again, an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. The priests and the Levites lived off of the sacrifices of the Lord. Numbers chapter 18, uh, verse 8 through a bunch of it. It says, you are allotted the portions of the most holy offering that is not burned on the fire. The portion of all the most holy offering, including the grain offering, sin offering, guilt offering, will be most holy. And it belongs to you and your sons. You must eat it as, your, as the most holy offering. All the males may eat of it, and you must treat it as most holy. So as the, as the people would bring their sacrifices to the Lord, it was also for the way that the priests would eat, and this is the way that they would survive. They didn't get allotted pieces of land like the other tribes. They were pulled aside as the Levites and, and, and given the, the, the task of ministering unto the Lord. That was their inheritance. It was the fact that they got to worship and serve God in his temple, leading the people in the worship of the Lord. That was their inheritance. And so when, when Paul's using this, this kind of imagery, he's saying these were rites that were seen in the Old Testament, that those who ministered for the Lord also were fed by that as well. And you're like, why are we talking about this? Why is this such a big deal? And I'm like, I don't know. But here's, here's where Paul is getting to, okay? He's making this case here. So the Lord gives instructions, a very detailed instructions on how the priests were not, to, were not allotted and land inherited. But also Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, he says, don't move around from the home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking. He's speaking to his disciples that were, were put out. He says, go out in twos, preach the gospel, heal, do the works of the kingdom. And they're coming back. But what he says to them is, stay in one place, eat and drink what they provide. Do not hesitate to accept hospitality but because those who work deserve their pay. He says, if you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. And so Paul here is proving his point, like very thoroughly here. It's taught in the Old Testament. It was taught by Jesus that apostles have rights. And Paul says, I have the right to say that I should be supported by the church. That is a right that I have. It's taught by Jesus. It was taught by the prophets. It was taught by God himself. That is his case. And he says, now, however, look what it says in verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel. Hold on a second. We just spent the last, I don't know how long, determining that Paul has rights and he says, but I'm not using them. What's going on here? Why did he feel that it was so important? And what's really interesting is that chapter 8 and chapter 10 talk about the exact same thing. They talk about freedom has to take a backseat to fellowship. That Jesus and your walk with Jesus is always more important and should always be more important than my personal freedom and liberties that I feel I have. That we are called by God to look out for one another and to treat each other with respect in order that we would edify one another. And Paul says, if I never eat meat again, that's fine because I want to see the church edified okay eight and ten are these almost identical preachings so why do we have this weird section in chapter nine where he's like i have rights i don't know if he said it just like that but clearly he had the right but he refuses it 
It seems like this chapter is extremely out of place and off topic, but he's developing something here. The case that he builds is to show his authority, but in the next sentence, he's telling us that he's giving it up and did not use those rights. Why? Because authority must be coupled with discipline. And that comes through maturity. He's not demanding his rights because I have authority. Maturely, he says, I'm laying them down because it's more important that I do not hinder the work of the gospel. How would he hinder the work of the gospel? There were false teachers in Corinth walking around, taking people's money, preaching flowery words, preaching false things, and ripping people off. And Paul says, I have the right to do that, but I don't want to look anything like that. I don't want you to ever second guess the message that we preach. I don't want to hinder the work of the gospel. And so I will work with my hands like a slave in order that you would see the truth of the gospel, that we truly love you, that we truly care about you, and we preach the gospel for free. We preach the gospel for free. I don't want anything from you. I never demanded anything from you. Clearly I could, but I didn't. What is Paul doing? He's using his own life as an example of fellowship over freedom. He's using his own life. What he preached in chapter 8, he lives out in chapter 9. Which is a testimony to all of us. What we say, we must also live. What a testimony. He says, freedom that we have, we have liberty. You have the right to eat whatever you want. Praise God. You can eat a Chick-fil-A if you want. You can eat it out in and out. You can be a vegan if you're going that direction. You can eat whatever you want. You can not eat whatever you want. Praise God. But guess what? If my food and my choices will affect your walk with Jesus, then I will forego every right that I have in order that you would see Christ. And I will do it for the rest of my life. How does someone come to a life transformation like that? Someone who demanded blood because they loved Jesus, right? Someone who murdered, someone who enslaved and imprisoned because they didn't see things the way that he saw them. How did that change? It's because Jesus came into his life and hit him in the face with light and his glory. And Paul's life was changed by Christ. It was the love of God that he says, now I'm compelled. Not only am I restrained, the the fact that I want to preach the gospel, I must preach the gospel. It's a responsibility I have. Paul is giving a living example of what he wrote in chapter 8 and 10, that if eating meat and freedom and and your rights are more important than edifying the church, he's asking the question, "Is is that more important? Is your freedom and your liberty that you take and you post and you show, is that more important than someone else's walk with Jesus Christ? And he says, then you sin against the brethren and you sin against Christ Jesus. And that is wrong. Is freedom and liberty wrong? No, it's awesome, it's wonderful. If it offends, not in the sense of like, that hurts my feelings, but if it causes someone to stumble and go back, if it causes someone to go backwards, and go back to worshiping idols, whether it's worshiping at the temple of sex, whether at the, uh, worshiping at the altar of alcohol, worshiping at the altar of weed. If that's where you worship and you're coming out of that and someone says, hey man, it's cool, it's no big deal, we have freedom in Christ, and it causes someone to go backwards and stumble, you are in sin, flat out. 
If you tell that girl, like, hey, we love each other. We love each other. And that's all the matter. The Bible says that God is love. So us living like this and us sleeping together, hey, it's no big deal. God is love. And we love each other. So it's no big deal. And you cause that girl or you cause that guy to stumble and to go back into the old life. You are in sin. And Paul says you are putting your freedom over someone else's fellowship with Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is sin. And this is where we need to adopt this attitude of Christ. Often I get super, I don't know about you, I get frustrated where I'm like, I have freedom. Right? Sort of. Like having kids and I have them in the back seat, like I have I don't have freedom. Like, I can't do whatever I want. I want to, you know, the other day I was mountain biking with my kids and I forgot they were in the trailer. I put them in the bike trailer and I like climbed to the top of this hill and I'm like, oh, I was just so thankful there was a downhill at that point because I'm like heavy and I'm biking. It's not a good mix. And I'm like ready just for a downhill portion. And so I just let go of the brakes and we went for it, forgetting that I have my four-year-old and my three-year-old in a bike trailer. My watch told me I was going 25 miles per hour down this hill and I'm going down our hill, like in our neighborhood and people are like standing outside watching me go by. And I'm like, what's your problem? And sure enough, I hit the turn and I'm like, oh, I have kids in the back, like, right? I, I forgot, like I'm trailing these people that have janky little helmets on and they're like these little buckles that like we're praying these things hold them in. Everything's okay. No one got hurt. We made it to the top and the bottom and we're all good. But what is Paul making the case for here? He's making a hard left towards priorities. He's, he's, he's really pinpointing here, what is your priority? Because he says, my priority has changed. My priority is no longer about making my name great. My priority is about making Jesus' name great. He says, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. He says in verse 15, but I have used none of these things. I've used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done he says, I'm not even writing these things down so that it starts taking place. I'm not writing this to convict you or like condemn you for not doing this for me. That's not the purpose behind it. For he says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul points out that his, his priorities had changed. He's living as an example. He says, this is what I'm talking about. If eating meat is more important and the freedom that I have is more important than, than and my rights are more important than edifying the church, then my priorities are out of whack. Something's out of whack here. And he points to that top list of priorities in our life and he says, what's at the top? What's at the top of your priority list tonight? Meaning, what's most important to you in this life? It's, that's a really, that's a pointy question. Because to really sit down and actually like think about it, because I know the Christian answer that we would all, you know, that I want to give personally, I'm like, it's Jesus. 
No, of course it's G like children's ministry. Jesus, it's always the answer. You know, eh, like, yeah, that's the main priority. But, but when I look into my own heart, and you all think right now that my main priority in my life is Jesus, right? You're like, it has to be. He works for the Lord and like works at church. But I know what's going on in my heart, and you know what's going on in your heart. And so you have to ask the question, as Paul asked the question of us, what is at the top of that list of priorities? What is it? Not in a condemning way of like, He's not like, I already know, you sick, sick person. He doesn't, he's not saying that. He's saying, if it's not Jesus Christ, then get it straight. Like, it, it's a wonderful message of encouragement and grace. Like, hey, your priorities in the pressures of all this world and all this junk that's been going on, it is very easy. Let me tell you, it is very easy to get our priorities out of whack and mixed up and completely weird. And so Paul says, let's, let's take inventory again and what's at the top of the list? Is it a career? Is it a job? Is that, what is it? Is it Christ in him crucified? Is Christ in him glorified? Let's put the king of kings back upon his place of authority in our life on his throne. Because that's where he belongs. And if it's not, he says, you can, you can like confess and get right. Like there's time to do that. Man, it's so easy for us to get priorities out of whack. So what do we do? Like, is there a verse? Is there a model? Like, how do we do this? I read this awesome quote from Bruce Lee. He said, <laughs> as the great theologian Bruce Lee once said, <laughs> he says, it is not a daily, sorry, I should have put this in a different place in my notes, but he says, it is not daily increase, but daily decrease. Hack away at the inessentials, as only Bruce Lee could communicate spiritual truth. <laughs> I think he was like a Buddhist or something. But it's true. Okay, so is it not, it's not daily increase. It's not by, by us just trying to like, okay, now I'm going to worship more. I'm going to do this more. What does he say? Just start chipping away at the stuff that's in the way. What needs to go? Like, obviously, that's the answer. Like, get rid of it. Paul even said in the, or if he wrote Hebrews, we don't know, but he says, lay aside every weight that so easily ensnares us that we might run this race to win. Like, it's not even that, that weights are necessarily sin, but they're things that hold us back from running as hard as we can or as best as we can. That's why runners wear the shorts that they wear. You know, and their shoes are as light as possible and their shirt is basically made out of paper. You know, it's like just this little tiny tank top that you're like, is it necessary? Like, what's that even for? Here you are, you know, and like swimmers who are shaving their legs or doing whatever, like less drag. We're going to make this, like get faster. That's the idea that Paul, it's, it's that mentality of losing anything and everything that would hold you back in order that we would increase in our love for Jesus. Way to go, Bruce Lee. So what is the verse? What, is, what do we do? Matthew 6.33. Jesus sets every Christian's priorities straight here. He says, if you ever wondered like what you're supposed to do now, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Like, God, what do I do? What do I do with my life? He says, first of all, first, seek first the kingdom of God and live righteously and then enjoy your life that I've given you. Everything else will be added to you. What a wonderful God. 
Do you know that God has given you talents and abilities not so that you would squander them in this building and just like sit here for all of eternity, become fossils in here? That God has given you abilities and talents so that when you go to do your job and to use your ability and your talent for, for whatever you're doing, the gospel goes with you? Do you know that God, his design for the gospel is that it would be spread. That is the design of the gospel. We'll get more into that next week. But his, his verse that Jesus exclaims is, we want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added unto us. But that has to take first. That has to be the priority. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said again to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, Okay, if you want to follow Jesus, that's my priority, man. That's what I want to do first. What did he say? First, deny yourself. Uh, this is like one of the hardest things ever. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But this is the promise part. But whoever loses his life, but it's all a promise. But here's the part that we like to crochet on pillows. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Right? Whoever, that, that, that verse right there, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. If it ended right there, all of us are like, man. <laughs> but here's the hope part. Whoever, meaning whoever you are, if you lose your life for his sake, you will find life. That is the promise that if you put Christ first and your priority second and yourself, you de deny yourself and exalt Christ and edify the church and put Jesus at the head, what happens? You will find life because Jesus is life. And then there's nothing else in this world that will compare to knowing him. You could jump off cliffs for a living, which sounds like an awesome career choice. You're like one of those divers sponsored by Red Bull. And you're like, I get free Speedos and Red Bull. And you're like, I just jump off cliffs into water. And they give you money for it. And you're like, that's what I want to do. Not as good. If you don't have Jesus, you're just jumping off a cliff into water. It has no purpose. Not that it ever did have purpose. <laughs> but do you see what I mean? You could be doing the coolest thing ever. If you don't have Christ in your life, you die without the most important thing. The priority's out of whack. It's not straight. You're not gonna find satisfaction. That's why he says the first step in getting my priorities straight is denying myself. The second is then counting the cost. Like there's cost involved in following Jesus. There's a cost involved. In 2 Samuel, David said um, he had made a huge mistake. He took a census of God's people it was jacked up. He brought a, a, a plague down upon the people. What time is it? Are you guys okay? Is it really hot in here? Okay, cool. Those of you sitting by the door are like, no, hurry. So <laughs> 2 Samuel 24, it says, Now this guy, I can't pronounce his name, looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So this guy went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And this guy said, why has my lord and king come to his servant? And David said to him, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now this guy said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are the oxen for burnt offering, the threshing floor, the implements, and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these O king, uh, this guy has said, I've given them to you for free. 
Like, here, you can have the threshing floor. In fact, here's some oxen, and here's the wood. I mean, everything that you need is right here, and I want you to just take it. You're the king. It's yours. And David says this, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offering to the Lord my God, that which costs me nothing. David said, sin is costly. That plague took out like 300,000 people. Some crazy amount. It, his mistake, his sin cost other people their lives. And so in going to the Lord, he said, I realize that my sin cost something. It cost me something. It cost them something. Sin is a costly thing. That's why when, when people would come to make offering to the Lord and they carried their little sheep, they had their little lamb to offer to the Lord and there they are and it's sacrificed unto the Lord and the burnt offering and they're clean and their sins are forgiven and they walk home from the temple and they make some dumb mistake. They realize that I gotta go back, I gotta do this again. I gotta go get another lamb. I gotta make sacrifice for the fact that I just stubbed my toe and said a word I shouldn't say. And you're like, baklava. And you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have said that. And now I'm in sin and this is happening. I broke God's law. I forgot about the oxen thing. Ah, what they're realizing is this is costly. And every time they went into the presence of God, every time they went into the temple, they were hoping there was no guarantee of the mercy and grace of God. That they could have been consumed with the offering for their sin. There was no guarantee in that moment. They were hoping that God would be merciful. So they realized and they understood that sin was costly. Sin is costly. It cost Jesus his life. I mean, he laid down his life for our sins. And so our life, there is going to be a cost involved in following Jesus. And as the people, as people examine my life, does my life bear the brand of the cross? I'm reminded, lastly, and we'll close here, of what Paul said in Philippians 3, 7. He says, I once thought these things were valuable, but I now consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. As my priorities shift, suddenly I realize it's not about the gifts that God has given us, but it is truly about the giver. And what's laid aside for the kingdom is actually replaced with more of God. And that's what Paul experiences. Everything that I thought, like that, that was valuable. He says, it's nothing in comparison to what I've gained in Christ. To what God has done for me. The value of it. And what it had cost me. He says, I'd, I would gladly give it up all again. It's worthless to me. And, and just how much more valuable Jesus is. And having his priorities straight. And also what's, dude, super cool. Is God didn't just take away and be like, yeah, see, you're going to bear that little scar forever. He replaces it with something. And it's more of him. It's more of him. And honestly, like, is there, that's why we come to church. Isn't that why you're here? It's not because, it's not the teaching for sure. It's because you want more of Jesus, isn't it? Isn't that what you come to church for? It's not, I'm not here because I'm like, like, I just love the color gray, and I just want to be in a room that's filled with gray. You know, like, that's not why we come here. It's not, it's not anything else. Listen, if, if you're coming for any other reason, you're missing the reason. We're here because Jesus dwells among his people. 
And when we sacrifice an evening on a Thursday, what we get is more of Jesus Christ. When you sacrifice a Wednesday and work down at children's ministry, you better believe you're getting more jewels in your crown in heaven. You, anything that you sacrifice here, does God not replace and rebuild and restore and give more in glory in his kingdom? And Paul has a wonderful way of just turning all of our rights on its head and says, why don't you, why don't you instead of fighting for them, why don't you lay them down and experience life in Christ? Because that's what Jesus did. And that's what I want to be like. And that's what Paul says he wants to be like. Man, I want to be like Jesus. Laying down my rights for the fellowship with Christ and for fellowship with others. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful, God, for your word tonight. And for the gift, Lord, of freedom in, in you. And, and Lord, the, the fact that you can redeem all things back to yourself. And um, Lord, that that you allow us to experience um, this Christian walk. And Lord, I'm just so thankful for your patience with us. Lord, I'm thankful for the fact that you, you, you endure with us, uh, that you're kind as you um, call out to us and you desire relationship with us. Lord, as we stumble, as we fall, God, I'm so thankful that you don't leave us, you don't forsake us, you don't give up on us, Lord. You, you continue to walk with us, calling us unto yourself, calling us unto more, showing us more of who you are, getting our priorities back in, in order. And so, Jesus, we want to take this time as we close in worship, as we sing to you of your praises, God, and your goodness to us, your mercy, Lord, that you've shown to us. We're reminded of who you are as we sing. Lord, we want to, uh, again, just take stock. Lord, speak to our heart. Lord, if, it's, if things have gotten out of whack and just, just totally out of place, Lord, we pray, God, would you, by your spirit, gently convict us, Lord, to, to put you back where you, you belong, upon the throne of our heart. Lord, we're thankful for your goodness and mercy to us, Lord. And God, we pray that you would minister in this time. Lord, you're the reason that we're here. You're the reason we gather here in this place is because we want to spend time in your presence. We need more of you. And Lord, when you visit us, there's, no, there's nothing like it. And Lord, we can't wait until we're no longer separated by space and time. And we're in your presence forever. And so, Lord, we pray that you give us a little taste of that this evening, a little taste of what it's going to be like to be in heaven singing with you and seeing you face to face. Lord, open our eyes and our understanding. Lord, we pray that you pull back the curtain, Lord, and we, we would see your glory. And so, Lord, we pray as we close in worship, God, minister to us, speak to us. May your Holy Spirit move among us. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.